today, Mark 12, verses 1 through 27, and we'll see Jesus answering a few questions that some people have. You know, one question people have is, should we pay taxes or not? (laughs) I'm hoping he'll say no, but you guys are going to see he's going to say yes. And it's very applicable this time of year, just in case there's anyone here who's a cheater. You got to pay your taxes. You're going to give an account to God. Secondly, is there marriage in heaven? People wonder about stuff like that. Jesus will answer that question. And thirdly, probably, um, you know, infinitely more important than those other questions is, is there life after death? And so we'll talk about that today. Uh, Among other things, we're going to learn that we are accountable to God, that we've been made in the image of God, and that the Father has sent the Son of God to save us. And so we begin reading in verse 1, Mark 12. It says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and, and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And so here Jesus is speaking to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Uh, Even they acknowledge that in verse 12. And he shares with them what's called a parable. And so a parable has been defined as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This earthly story has to do with a vineyard. I don't know if you guys ever uh, seen vineyards or maybe you can visualize. uh, they're, They're actually very beautiful we have a couple of pictures of them. I think, I think we do. Yeah, there's a, a, this, the big picture, and then you hone in, and then you get the grapes. Just uh, absolutely uh, stunning. Uh, and so the owner, he, he built this vineyard. He planted it, and he describes it here as also having a hedge of protection all around it, and then a wine vat that's already dug And so in a vineyard, there was a wine press in which the grapes were stepped on, stomped on, trodden down. And uh, you guys probably seen the I Love Lucy episode, you know, and then the the wine press uh, then received the juice that flowed 
from their feet. And so, you know, here in this parable, Jesus said all this was built by the owner, including a strong tower where they would store and they would be able to oversee the land, all intended for just the, the, the productivity of this vineyard to succeed. And so in the parable, the owner then leases us out to vine dressers while he's away, the Bible says, in a far country. And so in looking at this, we see the vine dressers didn't own the vineyard. They were what's called tenant farmers. And it was expected in the culture of that day that the owner would receive the fruit of the vine. As a matter of fact, Warren Wiersbe points something out that's very important. He said, in order to retain his legal rights to the property, the owner had to receive produce from the tenants. And so this explains why the tenants refused to give him anything, because they wanted to claim the vineyard for themselves. And so uh, the owner, he sends one of his guys to bring home some fruit, it's vintage time, but what do they do? They beat him up and they send him away empty-handed. He sends another and uh, they throw rocks at him. They wound him. They treat him shamefully. Uh, then others, uh, they beat. Others, they killed. And so, you know, the owner is trying to figure this out. And uh, what he does is he reasons like this. He says, well, maybe they really don't know that all those messengers represent me. And so this is what I'll do. I'll send my son, my only son. They, they'll know he's my son, and surely they'll respect him. But what do they do? Rather than receiving and respecting the owner's son, they agree to murder him, thinking that they'll be able to keep the vineyard for themselves. And so they kill him, and they throw him away like a piece of trash. And so Jesus shares the vineyard, he shares this parable, and he asks the question, what should be done to these vine dressers, these murderers? What will the owner do? And, you know, it's obvious he will judge the vine dressers, these tenant farmers, and he will give the vineyard to others. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Remember, the parable is uh, directed to the Jewish leaders of the day, and in one sense to the Jews as a whole because they followed their leaders. And so uh, they were given this vineyard, Israel. It's amazing. They were blessed by God who was the owner. I mean, his election, his salvation, his, his uh, touch, his truth was given to Israel as the vineyard. We don't have time to go there, but I do encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 5 and you'll see it explicitly stated that Israel is the vineyard. And these vine dressers, these guys, uh, in this parable anyways, they're the religious leaders. But as the Son came, as Jesus came, as their Messiah, what we see is that they rejected him. And a matter of fact, when you look at the chronology of this, three days later, they would kill him. Prior to that, when you look at Israel, they had a long history of rejecting the message, rejecting the messengers of God. They mocked them. They ignored them. They beat them. They killed them. They you know, put Jeremiah in a pit. They cut Isaiah in half. John the Baptist was dead. Next was Jesus. So what's going to happen to them? Well, according to Jesus, they would be judged, right? And in verses 10 and 11, he quotes from Psalm 118, uh, 22 and 23. Notice again, it says, The stone 
which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. That stone is Jesus. The builders were these Jewish leaders. They didn't realize he's the chief cornerstone. And what ended up happening as a result of this is 1.1 million, think about that, 1.1 million Jews died in the year 70 A.D., you know, that interpretation is they, the builders, the Jews, rejected him. They mistakenly thought, well, we're not accountable to God. You know, this is ours. Even though God did everything for them, planted the produce, provided for them, protected them, they rejected the very one that did all that for them. That's the interpretation the application, I think for us, is that sometimes, like verse 1 here, uh, we think, well, God's far away, you know? The owner's far away, and so people think they can get away with sin or they can turn away from God. Sometimes we think that. There are people out there, maybe even in here today, who think, well, I don't need to give God a dime of my time. I, I don't need to give God this grapevine is mine. It's mine, even though it's God's. <laughs> even though God's the one who made and maintains them, that keeps their heart beating, that keeps that sun shining, that keeps this world spinning, that gives them the very oxygen for their every breath. You know, God has planted and provided and protected, but, you know, they won't let go of a grape. They don't pay any attention to his messengers or his message. The last thing they'll do is read or heed the Bible. And when you, when you see the big picture here, this parable that Jesus paints, it really is, is heartbreaking to see that, you know, these things happen. But I will also say this, you guys. It's also encouraging to know that uh, even though, you know, if people reject God, they will be judged, that if people embrace God, they'll see that he's a very patient and forgiving God. Right? I mean, he kept reaching out to them. Isn't that the way God is? He's always, you know, just reaching out to us, willing to forgive us, even of something as horrendous as murder. He'll forgive anything. There's nothing that you've done that's too bad that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. I mean, even to the point, willing to forgive them, even to the point that ultimately we learn, here's the thing, you guys, and you've got to know this. At the end of the day, it's not really a sin issue. It's a son issue. What will you do with God's son? See, that's really at the, at the end of the day that all this is going on. He sends them his son. And that's the key, really, for all of us here. You know, we've done a lot of bad things, but the main thing is what will we do with Jesus? You know, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And so God has sent his son, his only son, the son he loves, to save us. See, and for us, you guys, that's where it's at. You know, Jesus knew these guys weren't there, and so he was trying to get them there. And sometimes it takes a scare. You know, I know one guy, he got saved by thinking about hell. <laughs> he said, man, it's hot. You know, and then you got saved. Um, yeah, things like that do happen, man. There are those who mistakenly believe that God won't judge. He hasn't done it. 
And how long? How many times have I gotten away with this sin? I'm still alive. And besides, God's too nice. That's how some people believe. Oh, but he will judge. Yes, he's patient and he is nice, but he's also holy and just. You know, maybe you heard that story. It's a true story about a guy named Gary Tyndall. And he was in a California courtroom charged with robbery. And as he's there, getting ready to stand before the judge, he needs to use the restroom. The judge gives him permission. And while he's in the restroom, he actually climbs up. He opens up a panel in the ceiling, and, uh, and he begins to you know, try his great escape. And so he's climbing up on the rafters. He goes about 30 feet, and then he falls through the ceiling tiles. <laughs> Guess where he ended up? <laughs> right in front of the judge (laughs) and you know we can try to escape and you can be there and there's there's a proverb it says there is a way that seems right to a man but his end is death you're like well that doesn't seem right to me well where were you when the world was made god is god not you and we'll stand before him one day You know the saying, in the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but someday each of us will have to sing a solo before God. And we'll stand before him naked. Question, will you be covered by the blood of his son? That's what Jesus says. And then the Lord, he shares in verse 13, that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one for you. Do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, they weren't really interested in his word, They're only trying to catch him in his words, right? And they wanted Jesus to say something that would kind of get him in trouble, that would indict himself with the governing authorities. And so, you know, they thought to themselves, well, what better question than a question on taxes? And so they come to him, teacher, we know you're no respecter of persons, uh, so you're the perfect one to ask, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And they thought they had Christ stuck between a rock and a hard spot. And so uh, in those days, uh, that was a hot issue. In the days of Roman rule, the way that it worked, if you were considered a troublesome people, they would make your province one where there would be troops, and therefore you would be taxed heavily. Israel fell under that category. They had a ground tax, they had an income tax, they had a poll tax, And so, of course, uh, they fought this vigorously. You guys know there's always uh, the fight against taxes. There's always the Tea Party, right? Always. You know, Josephus, a historian, even tells us that in the year 6 AD, 
a man identified as Judas of Galilee, led a resistance to the census that they gave because they knew that census would lead to Roman taxation. And so he encouraged the Jews. He said, don't register in the census. He said, if you do, we'll burn your house and we'll take your cattle. And that's exactly what they did. His message was that if they tax us, we're nothing more than slaves. And so he called on the people to rise and revolt. And he said that God would favor them only if they resorted to all the violence they could muster. He justified his cause by saying to the Jews that God was their ruler. And he made it religious. And therefore, you know, what we find is that the Romans eventually executed this guy, but his battle cry didn't end. They had a, a mantra. They said, no tribute to the Romans, no taxes for the Romans. And that became the rallying cry of many Jewish patriots. And so when they come with this question, should we pay taxes, uh, they thought it was a lose-lose situation for Jesus, right? But, but he took advantage of their hypocrisy and he uses an opportunity to teach something far more important than money. You know, even more important than our obligation and duty to give our taxes to the government is our obligation and duty to give our lives to the Lord. And in case you're wondering, just in case, we are required to pay our taxes, okay? Jesus commanded it here. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We also see it in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, where Paul reiterated this truth. And, and the thing that's implied here, just as the government owns the money, God owns us. You see, Jesus brilliantly teaches this truth by asking for a denarius. And so he probably didn't have his own. You know, a denarius was about a day's wages. I don't know, 100 bucks. He said, okay, show me a denarius. And, uh, uh, he, you know, whose image is on it? And, uh, you know, they look at the denarius. If you were to see one, you would see Caesar's image on it. And, uh, and he says, render to Caesar, give it to Caesar. It's got his image on it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then he says, render to God the things that are God. And what it is is an implication for sanctification. Look at that coin. Look, have you ever done that? You're like, well, I like money. I like money. What does it really belong to? It belongs to the government. Look at it. Okay, now look at yourself. Look at you, look closer, look deeper, think harder. Whose image is stamped on your soul? Whose image is on you? See, we forget we bear his image. The Bible says that in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, Right? I mean, he made the stars, and they're beautiful. He spoke them into existence by the power of his word, and he made all these things on earth and the plants and the animals. I mean, just amazing. But none of that, none of them were made in his image until he made man. And when he made us, he made us like him. On Genesis 5, 1, in the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 9, 6, that's why it says you're not supposed to kill because we are made in the image of God. In the Hebrew, the word means resemblance. It's a model, it's a pattern. 
in James 3, in verse 9, in the New Testament, it reveals we've been made in the image, likeness, the similitude of God. There's the similarities there. We, in one sense, are his representation in creation. How are we similar to God? Is God about six feet tall, nine-inch, you know, hand span? Some people will say that, and that's absolutely not true. Uh, you got to think beyond the physical. Um, five things come to mind. There are many others, but number one, we are uh, social beings, and by that, it means we can have some pretty cool conversations. Number two, we are rational beings, and that means that we can make uh, decisions based on logic and reason. Number three, we are moral beings. We don't just uh, you know, respond by instinct. We have a conscience that's written on us that tells us what's right and wrong. Number four, we are spiritual beings. If you think, if you close your eyes, you'll know there is a soul inside of this tent. And then number five, we are eternal beings. When we die, we live on. All of that points to the fact that we are created in the image of God. You know, we are not accidental descendants of some murky, muddy monkey. We're not. We are made in the image of God. Just as that coin, it bears Caesar's image and therefore belongs to him and should be given to him, you and I bear God's image. We belong to him and we should give our lives to him. The word render, you know what it means? It means give it up. It means give it back to the God who owns you. Now stop fighting. Stop resisting God's love. See? His leading, his life, that's what Jesus is saying here. And in the end, Jesus unravels their web of wickedness where they're trying to catch him, and it's so cool, he ends up actually turning it around so that he tries to catch us. I love you. I want you to go to heaven. You've sinned and distanced yourself from me, but I won't accept that type of distance. I sent my son to die on the cross for you. That's how much I love you. Will you only believe and receive? Can you just give me back your life? And this is what God calls us to do. It's a decision that everyone has to make on their own. That's the way love works. Love can never be forced. Give God your life. Your parents can't do it for you. Your friend or family member can't do it for you. They can't make that decision to fully follow the Lord. Only you can. That's the, the, I love that passage in Proverbs 23, 26. It says, my son, you know, or you could put my daughter, give me your heart. That's how it starts. And then as a Christian, he goes on to say, let your eyes observe my ways. And so stories, conversations, exchanges with people. The last one in verse 18, it says, And then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children... His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. 
Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. You should have checked her cooking probably, huh? They're all all dead. But Jesus answered and said to them, here's the thing, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore are greatly mistaken. Now this is the only time in Mark's gospel that we read about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of like wealthy aristocrats. They were actually like the Supreme Court, the 70 that ruled. Uh, the Sadducees and Sanhedrin, and they're all members kind of mixed together. But um, according to the scriptures, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angels, no spirits, right? And so, you know, there's people out there like that. There's no life after death. There's no resurrection. There's no such thing as the invisible realm. And, and, you know, the devil would love for us to believe that there is nothing beyond the grave. There's no life after death, no resurrection from the dead. But let me just share something with you. That's impossible to prove. It is impossible to prove what's called a universal negative. You can't prove there is no life after death. You can prove there is. You know, when it comes to life after death, some are mockers. We read that in Acts 17, verse 32, when Paul preached on Mars Hill. Others are what I would call liars or deniers. Uh, We read about them in 1 Corinthians 15. Probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, emphasizing the fact that there is a resurrection. You see, the Sadducees thought they could prove their point to Jesus. There's no life after death. By using this uh, mosaic mandate, it, it was called the, the leveret marriage. And what it meant is like if your brother had a wife and they had no children, that was huge to the Jews because uh, not only did they have to carry on the name, but to the Jews they had land that belonged to their family. And the way that they would pass on the land is through their children. They didn't want the land going out to other tribes and other people and other families. It was really important for them. And so if uh, your you know, sister-in-law died, then you, as a, as a brother, you would do your godly duty. You would take her as wife. You would produce offspring. And, uh, and you know, that's how they would then be able to keep that land and that name. And so uh, Jesus here you know, is talking to these guys, and they say, well, this guy had seven, you know, this gal had seven husbands. So when she goes to heaven, if there's a heaven... Whose wife will she be, right? And so Jesus responds by explaining uh, that there's marriage in this age, but not in the age to come. And we need to know that, you know. Of course, there's the exception. Jesus will marry the bride. There is the church. There's that marriage. But there's no human marriage, right, between men and women, now, some of you are married here, and who knows, maybe you're happy about that. Mo- most of us here, <laughs> no, most of us are, are bummed about that. We're like, oh, man, 
You know, I thought this was going to be forever. And I always tell my wife, well, we'll still be best friends, okay, in heaven. <laughs> but there's no procreation. There's no need for that in the next generation. Why didn't the Sadducees know that? The answer is they didn't know the scriptures. Notice again what Jesus says there in verse 24. Are you not therefore mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God? How could someone rise from the dead? They didn't know the power of God. Raising the dead is not too difficult for him. He does it many times in the Bible. And then Jesus gives a scriptural support taken from Exodus 3 verse 6 and verse 15 where he says that when God appeared to Moses, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're alive, and they're well, and I'm their God. You see, he's telling them, you guys are greatly wrong. Again, notice what he says there, they're greatly mistaken. And um, that right there, it means you're deceived. It means you're very, very wrong. If you think there's no life after death, it means that you have made a very serious error. There's an interesting passage in the book of Ecclesiastes where the Bible says God has placed eternity in our hearts. When you think and you stop and you drown out the lies of Lucifer, you know there's more. You just know that. And so I like that passage in John 5, 20 and 29. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. See, there is life after death. The only question is, where will you spend eternity? In one sense, it's kind of explained like this, with or without God. Which do you choose? Let me close, and this is going to be very difficult for me, by rapping. (laughs) You guys, um, man, something on my bucket list is that I want to be a rapper like Lecrae one day. (laughs) And um, I don't think it's going to happen, but maybe, man. But, you know, I like all kinds of music. You guys are like that, right? You know, the rock, the hill song, the Maranatha. I don't want you guys to think that all I like is rap. But I, I do like rap, and sometimes when I'm working out, uh, pretty much I have the same playlist. Always listen to this song over and over and over again. It says, what you trusting in, what you lusting in for that busting mama that's strutting in, you popping bottles, you throwing dollars, that's cool. But partner, this just in, that you going to live forever whether you want to or not. Some of us going to live up holy, some of us going to end up hot. That's what he says, right? <laughs> and, and what he's saying is that it's, it's eternal life. It's eternal life or death. It's heaven or hell. It's with or without God. And so in looking at this vineyard right here, looking at this whatever image of God here, whatever it is, let me just close by saying this way, give it up. Give it up. And then live it up. You watch what God will do. We have to bear fruit for our Father. We have to give our life to the Lord. We are accountable to God, made in the image of God. He sent the Son of God to die for us. Let's choose life today.
If you're a Christian, um, I pray that you would bear huge grapes and fruit for God, for his glory. And if you're not, I pray that today would be the day. Because no man has tomorrow guaranteed that today would be the day you choose to follow him.